my name is Anwar. Uh, thanks everybody for staying at the uh, towards the end of the conference for this talk. Um, it is uh, super strategies to help your super utilizers in uh, ER. So just so I can uh, kind of understand where everybody's coming from, how many how many folks here are medical directors? Okay, I guess pretty much everybody. Uh, that's great. And um, how many of you guys have uh, implemented some sort of care coordination plan? Uh, kind of for for everybody or for a specific group? Kind of everybody. <laughs> That's good. Well, I mean, uh, we'll talk about that. That could be helpful too. Um, so, uh, the uh, the syllabus that's in your um, that's on the app and everything. I actually very much prefer to use Prezi presentations. Uh, so that's kind of like a skeleton outline. Uh, it, it, using this allows me to get more videos and uh, more up-to-date stuff. So. Um, I'll have them attach the, the link to this Prezi uh, at the conclusion of this talk, uh, and uh, it'll have references that I use in here, and um, uh, you'll be able to look at the Prezi whatever. Okay, so, okay, so uh, again, my name is Anwar. I am a assistant professor of internal medicine and emergency medicine. I work uh, at Emory uh, in Atlanta. And uh, I'm the chair of the observation medicine section uh, for the next couple of years. Uh, I uh, was the medical director of our uh, uh, ED observation unit and our hospitalist run observation unit for a time. Uh, and I was the assistant medical director for a time. Uh, I gave those things up so I could probably, uh, so I could concentrate a little bit more on uh, things going on here at ASAP and with our hospitalist observation unit. So uh, the talk, again, is about super utilizers. And uh, so just to kind of give you an overview, I'm going to start with trying to define who the super utilizers are. Uh, and uh, it might be a Byzantine group. You might think it's just one person. But uh, they actually kind of have some, some consistent characteristics. Uh, also, we're going to talk about uh, why is this all of a sudden important. Uh, people have been super utilizers since the 80s. Uh, and since the 70s, so uh, what are the things that cause us to be at the tipping point to like bring out uh, people to give grants and things of that nature? Uh, then I was going to share a couple of vignettes about uh, success stories that uh, might be apl applicable to your own particular shop, uh, followed by uh, kind of like a summary for what the uh, best practices in a care coordination sort of effort might look like. Uh, and then uh, I'll share with you our uh, experience over at Grady Memorial Hospital. Grady is our uh, inner city downtown uh, resident training facility. Uh, and we had a, uh, um, I guess the nice word was a kerfuffle with uh, care coordination back in 2010, 2009. So uh, I can uh, kind of give you the inside scoop on that. And uh, at the end, uh, I would invite anybody uh, you know, if you feel like you want to share a uh, care coordination example or ask questions, uh, we'll have some time for that also. Uh, so because there's not that many of us here, so you feel free to stop me uh, and ask a question at any point. I'm fine with that. So, <clears throat> so first, uh, who are the super utilizers, right? Uh, full disclosure, there's like uh, 100 different things to look at 
as far as uh, how to define what a super utilizer might be, uh, it, whether or not those super utilizers are defined by admissions versus ED stays versus readmissions. Uh, so there's a lot of data to sift through. And uh, not in, a, in an effort to make it basic, but really to try to hit the high points of uh, what's going to be necessary to know to kind of develop your own care coordination plan uh, if necessary. So uh, first thing we should know is that CMS has, uh, I wouldn't say this is uh, too broad, but uh, they define a super utilizer in a couple of places on their publicly available literature uh, as uh, beneficiaries. Uh, with complex unaddressed health issues and a history of frequent encounters with healthcare providers. Some places it'll see frequent encounters with the emergency department, uh, but it doesn't really put a number on it, right? And it doesn't define it just as an ER visit. It doesn't define it as an admission. Uh, so uh, CMS keeps it kind of broad. Uh, multiple sources actually use the term kind of interchangeably super user, right? Uh, super user generally uh, is in the ER literature, uh, and it refers to ED patients a lot of times who have greater than 10 visits uh, per year and or make up about 1% of uh, the ED volume. So uh, just uh, for the purposes of this talk, uh, I'm not really going to differentiate between the two of those. Uh, of note, like this 10 visits a year to the ER is a lot. Uh, and there's some studies that uh, kind of document people have like 10 and 20, and uh, some people have like 100 visits in a year. Uh, very hard to make uh, research papers and kind of study that group because it's only a handful of people in a community. But we'll get to how we can address that. Uh, but suffice it to say, the super utilizer in general uh, refers to someone with about four to five ER visits in a year, uh, or maybe two to three hospitalizations from that ER visit in a year. Uh, so other things that we kind of know from the, uh, the data uh, in, uh, about the super utilizer population. Uh, so uh, some of these studies are old. Uh, some of them are up to date. But there's uh, some very consistent prevailing themes uh, even all, through all of them over the past 15 years. This first one here, uh, Mandelberg 2000, was in uh, academic emergency medicine. And uh, this was a uh, study where they looked at uh, visits to San Francisco General, right? And uh, I want to point out uh, one main uh, point here is uh, the attrition rate, right? So some of these patients that met their definition in the first year uh, did not come back during that second year. They fell out of the group, and they didn't meet the definition again. That's going to come up a lot. Uh, so uh, that, that study's had like 300 some odd thousand patients. And what they found is, is that, yes, there's a group that kind of evens out at the bottom, three, four, five, that keeps coming again and again and again. And that's probably your 20, 30, 40 visits a year people. However, uh, a large amount of the people that they would define as the frequent utilizers would come for a brief period of time, almost like in a cluster, and uh, would not be in that group. Uh, later, not necessarily because they died or anything, but uh, but their need was their need was somehow met. Uh, further, this uh, Johnson study here, this came out last year in uh, Health Affairs, uh, and this was uh, done in uh, Denver County. So uh, they kind of define the uh, uh, the population by hospital admissions, right? Not necessarily what our ER population is about. Uh, not necessarily what our ER population is about, 
However, uh, I want to make a, a couple of points here. So again, uh, the attrition over the course of months present, even if you look in terms of uh, hospital visits. So uh, this maroonish line gets bigger over time. They weren't in the original cohort. Uh, and then, uh, so that's new. these are all new frequent uh, super utilizers. Uh, in the original cohort and will lose and regain status. So these sorts of people sometimes would be in and then sometimes would be out uh, depending on, uh, on the month. So, and in the original cohort and continuously met criteria. So these are the people that keep coming again and again and again and it doesn't make up uh, as big of a volume of the uh, super utilizer population in a per person sense uh, as uh, we would typically think. So, uh, so one of the things we know is that uh, many super utilizers' needs are uh, temporary. So uh, in the, if you look in mass, a lot of these patients have needs that can be met, and uh, that would be a, a way to target interventions. All right. Also from this uh, health affairs paper, uh, this is in uh, four or five other sources, but I like the fact that this graph is in color. And uh, what they showed was in this group uh, that uh, this group with multiple chronic conditions, or MCCs as you might read it, uh, makes up a, a, a large part of the uh, super utilizers. So a lot, multiple chronic conditions uh, is actually pretty well defined as three or more uh, chronic conditions. Uh, sometimes they include psychiatric conditions with that, but uh, needless to say, this makes up a lot of the persons. Uh, and uh, the other thing that is very important about this that comes up multiple times. The uninsured rate here in Denver, uh, they had it at about 25%. Uh, if you look at more uh, studies, you'll see that it's not, that they don't necessarily meet the stereotype of somebody who has absolutely nothing uh, and uh, only has one thing. Uh, it's a lot of people that have a bunch of, bunch of conditions and a lot of them have insurance, Medicare and Medicaid counting that. Uh, also, uh, you can kind of see here, in Denver, there's uh, a lot of, uh, uh, there's a high minority population for this particular study. But even still, in the black and Hispanic group, yes, this is definitely a disproportionate amount. However, uh, I mean, this is about 50%, so a large number of these uh, super utilizers demographically would also be uh, white, white people, uh, or non-Hispanic, non-black white people. So. Um, a lot of the super utilizers have multiple chronic conditions. That comes up very frequently when you look at uh, Medicare and Medicaid data and AHRQ data. And uh, finding these people just as their own group can target interventions. Uh, something else we know. So this actually came out in April uh, of this year. And uh, this was uh, a look at uh, some patients in, in Tennessee uh, through their Medicare and Medicaid uh, program. Uh, and they uh, found a group of people with the uh, multiple chronic conditions, like the MCCs. And uh, so this is a little bit different of a group than hospitalizations, a little bit different of a group than people who are just defined as having X number of visits a year. This is X number of visits a year plus uh, multiple uh, chronic conditions. And so uh, this graph was not available in color. However, uh, what you can see here is, uh, again, this total hospital admissions, this uh, uh, medium gray bar. It does drop off in a similar sort of attrition rate, just like how we talk, talked about before. 
Uh, the same can be said for this 30-day uh, uh, unplanned readmission. Uh, there's a decrease over time. Uh, but however, what you see here is uh, ER visits without admissions and these patients that have the multiple chronic conditions, uh, there's a little bit of attrition. However, they keep coming back to the ER here and they get a thing, right? Uh, and so can anybody guess what happens in the ER here uh, to this group? They might get treated and released. Uh, a lot of these people will end up in the OBS unit, kind of getting uh, care from that standpoint. Uh, for most of these uh, health services papers that have uh, data about the admissions to the hospital, they kind of treat observation admissions to the floor similarly in their data, so it's kind of hard to figure that out. Uh, however, my, my guess is, uh, or my hypothesis would be that a lot of these patients end up in observation units. Uh, a lot of these are your heart failure patients and asthma patients that come uh, and uh, uh, are, have a need for an intervention and get a lot of those needs sort of met in the, in the observation unit. So, uh, the third thing we know is uh, even though uh, super utilizers stop getting admitted over time, the ones with chronic, uh, multiple chronic conditions still might come back to the ER. So uh, again, the super utilizers have a high attrition rate, uh, meaning that like they fall out of this cohort and definition of super utilizer over time. A lot of them have multiple chronic conditions and a lot of these people keep coming back to the ER. Uh, and uh, these things you might not have known, but the, uh, the one surprise really is this uh, attrition group. Okay, uh, super patients. And next, we'll talk about uh, why this is important uh, now. Uh, again, the, the most obvious answer is uh, kind of explained by a couple of those other graphs. Uh, the Medicare, Medicaid population uh, within the super utilizer group is very high. It's in everybody's best interest as taxpayers. It's in CMS's best interest to try to decrease uh, costs for these patients. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the overall theory about why the ER is a, is a big part of that uh, in a little bit. But uh, one of the big tipping points was uh, this uh, New Yorker article. I'm sure you guys know who this, this guy is. Uh, but this was uh, uh, before, I think he wrote, uh, the checklist book and everything, he was writing columns for uh, the New Yorker. And uh, just as a side note, uh, this is one of the reasons why I try to encourage all of my physician colleagues to get uh, attuned uh, to writing in the lay literature, even if it's for your local paper, uh, because this is the kind of thing you could have done hundreds of research studies and not had the same impact that this one piece in the New Yorker had as far as health services is concerned. Uh, so he wrote this Hotspotters paper. Uh, there's a lot to it, a lot to unpack, but uh, it's about this guy, uh, Dr. Brenner. Oh, I had sound in this. It was going to break things up. It was going to be really funny. Uh, hold on here. Second. So we did a sound check earlier. All right. So uh, this uh, super utilizer uh, hotspotters paper took place in, uh, in Camden, and uh, they had a lot of programs that they uh, started in as far as uh, case coordination is concerned, 
But one of the keys from this whole uh, Hotspotters initiative is that they got very creative with how they intervened uh, with their patients. Uh, the sound is off. Yeah. Does anybody have any questions so far? Other than what happened to the sound? <laughs> Right. There is some attrition with the ER visits also, uh, but that one uh, that came out this year was uh, kind of with the innovation that we're fixing. Uh, that was just really with the multiple chronic conditions, and those people have a smaller level of uh, attrition rate. Running a primary care office in Camden is like having a focus group every day tell you all the failures going on all over the delivery system and not having any power to impact that. We're taking really vulnerable sick people and not taking good care of them. And we're spending a lot of money in the process. And we can do better. So I felt like if I reached up out of my office and grabbed a hold of a big data set that I could begin to prove what I was seeing in my office. We went and got raw billing data from all three hospitals in Camden. As we began to map that graph that charted it, we realized that these big data sets had a lot of power. We learned that 20% of the patients were 90% of the cost. Someone had actually gone to the emergency room 113 times in one year. Someone had gone 324 times in five years. We need to figure this out because if you can fix healthcare for a utilizer, you really can fix it for everyone. So in my mind, hotspotting at Camden is really about strategic use of resources that respond in real time to problems. Right now we have a passive medical system that waits for you to come to it. And what we need to do is create a medical system that actively seeks out sick people and takes much better care of them. We managed to win a grant and put together an outreach team to go out and meet the sickest, most complex high cost patients in the city, super utilizers and deliver better care to these patients. I'm deeply motivated to fix the system because I've seen the impact on a day-to-day -day basis in people's lives. The innovation that we're figuring out here in Camden is going to mean better care for everyone. Now, judging by that inspiring music, you would think that it's very easy to do and just turn around and do it. Uh, not the case. Uh, but, however, it does point out that uh, there are some solutions to be had. And, uh, and I think, as uh, we'll see, you know, in Camden, uh, the response had to kind of be tailored to the community and tailored to the resources at hand. Uh, for instance, Camden is inner city. Uh, I live in Atlanta. Uh, we have a public trans transit situation. Anybody here work in a rural hospital? Right. So uh, in Atlanta, the issue a lot of times is really more about homelessness. Uh, and a little bit of getting to your appointments and dialysis uh, is transportation. 
However, if you live in a community that doesn't have, uh, that, that is more rural and patients uh, are more spread out, the issue may be very much more so uh, transportation and less about having unstable housing, just as, and as, as an example. Uh, so health services, super utilizers, and uh, ED patients. So uh, there's a couple of uh, salient uh, literature reviews. One here is from 2010. And uh, they had a, a fair number of studies. What they did find that uh, is important to point out that, uh, again, this definition of frequent use, kind of all over the place, right? Uh, some places say like three, uh, some as many as 10, and they try to put this data in and match it up with other places. But uh, suffice it to say, again, super utilizer is kind of a, uh, a very broad term. Uh, the, other, the other piece of it uh, that they pointed out here is that uh, uh, a lot of the uh, things where they said, oh, we saved a bunch of money, the money-to-money -money sort of thing doesn't always match up. If you notice from that video, they talked about a decrease in hospital charges. If everybody here is a medical director, you know charges are different from costs, right? Costs that they have in there may be direct costs, may be direct costs coupled with indirect costs. So really trying to figure out which one of these things actually is cost-effective uh, is actually kind of hard to do uh, if you look at it from a uh, group of data or a, a system, systematic review kind of standpoint. However, um, what, we, what they also found in this, though, is that uh, contrary to what we kind of think about these patients, uh, super utilizers are oftentimes sicker than your occasional visit ER patients, right? That kind of fits with the data that we just talked about that uh, these patients have uh, multiple chronic conditions, uh, many of them had recent admissions within the past six months uh, for one of their chronic conditions. So uh, they also, in other studies, have shown uh, to have slightly higher mortality than your occasional ER visit patients. Uh, so again, kind of flies against the stereotype that these people just want a turkey sandwich. Sometimes they get sick, uh, and a lot of times they uh, get admitted. Also, super, super utilizers are more likely to have a PCP uh, than your uh, patients who uh, only occasionally visit the ER. Now, uh, this right here, although it makes sense uh, from the standpoint of what you can find other places doing, uh, what might be happening more in practice, and you guys probably, uh, everybody here probably experiences this, uh, the super utilizer might come to the ER 10 times, and uh, one of those 10 times they'll make an appointment and not go. It's very hard in the literature to figure out if the, those patients didn't just make the appointment as opposed to make the appointment show up. Uh, however, uh, there uh, is kind of a myth that they don't have a doctor. A lot of them have a doctor identified. Kind of hard to sort out if they actually go to that doctor as much as patients who only occasionally visit the ER. Uh, again, uh, if you look at all of these studies in mass, uh, the uninsured rate is uh, not necessarily low, but uh, it's not uh, uh, non-existent. Uh, so, this uh, study actually, is, it's not uh, in press yet. Uh, you can find it. Uh, it's not really formatted. However, like this uh, systematic review uh, had the biggest number of studies included. So uh, in, the, in the syllabus on your phone there, or on your, your app, uh, there's one that had like 20 some odd studies. This one had 31. I thought it would be more salient. Uh, the other thing that was uh, important about this is that they divided the interventions uh, so that we can talk about them in terms of uh, case management, care plans, uh, diversion strategies, printouts, case notes, and uh, social work visits at home, right? 
And uh, most of the case, most of these 31 studies included uh, case management. And case managers may or may not be clinical uh, in terms of being a nurse or a nurse practitioner. Uh, but when you really looked at, look at each of these cases, a lot of times the case management solutions were considerably creative and uh, not the same from shop to shop to shop. Uh, so most of these interventions in these 31 studies that were included uh, uh, had a success in the primary endpoint, which was decrease ER uh, visits, right? Again, healthcare costs, kind of hard to uh, 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 quantify over the range of 31 studies because people uh, do the cost accounting uh, very differently. Uh, mortality, that benefit probably is not going to be able to be seen by uh, this sort of thing. Admissions also yield heterogeneous results when you look at, again, the broad range of things. Uh, however, uh, I think uh, this right here, this one paper, uh, helps us uh, guide the discussion of what are the big interventions that happen all the time, and uh, maybe we need to look at the, the primary endpoint and then couple that with these at-risk groups that uh, we talked about earlier, the ones with uh, multiple chronic conditions. Uh, also, the, there were four studies in this, uh, uh, in this review where they tried to fix people's unstable housing, uh, and that was successful every time. Whether or not that uh, uh, translated into a uh, decrease in ER visits, kind of hard to say. Uh, however, when people try to fix the housing, they can fix the housing. All right, so that's why uh, one of the reasons, that's basically the reason why this is all very important now. Uh, probably the tipping point was uh, something in the lay literature with the Tulgawande piece. Uh, again, Medicare and Medicaid patients are a lot of times in this group, uh, and that, as we all know, drives a lot of health services and healthcare policy. All right, so it's a, a couple of uh, success sort of stories. And uh, one is uh, the Washington experience, and then uh, we'll talk briefly about the Maryland experience. Uh, so this uh, 2012 uh, kind of story. Is anybody here from Washington? Okay, right. Well, you know all about this. The, 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 the thing that really had the national ear before this, uh, and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, was in 2011. This was Washington was all over the news for wanting to do the, the three visits to the ER and you're done. And so uh, that went through uh, legislation and it was actually Washington ASEP and other groups that really championed the cause that this is not appropriate. And uh, if, even if you look at the data that came out uh, just at this same time, again, those patients that went to the ER two or three times uh, are, are very likely to be sick. And uh, oftentimes, if you, you look at the, uh, the data that uh, was in that uh, meta-analysis, you don't really find as many non-urgent complaints. Also, there's the whole humanistic standpoint that you know, everybody in here understands, but leg legislators don't really understand, is that you can't really judge the necessity of your ER visit based on your diagnosis, as opposed to your chief complaint. Uh, so uh, good on ASAP for uh, helping our group uh, Helping, helping champion that uh, position. And uh, through that, uh, the physicians in ASEP and other groups put together an uh, alternate plan uh, that was designed to address a lot of the same things. Uh, it was called the ERs for Emergencies Plan, but it came out with the seven best practices. Uh, and uh, 
in brief, uh, adoption of uh, health inf information exchange across the state. Now, uh, again, I say legislation, so there's, there's ways to get things done in health services. You can get a grant. Uh, you can uh, go beg the CEO. Uh, but if you want 100% participation, you need a law. So that's what happened. And uh, they had a adoption of HIE in 100% of the participants. Uh, dissemination of patient education materials. Uh, so uh, if you go back to, just think back just a minute ago to that, the Mo paper from uh, this year, uh, patient education was one of those things. Uh, ide identifying frequent users, making care plans for these users, which include follow-up within 72 hours, uh, narcotic guidelines uh, that are shared with providers, encourage uh, the prescription monitoring program uh, enrollment, and uh, to have a review of the interventions. And uh, if you look at this, these seven things in terms of the uh, interventions that's uh, covered in all of the uh, uh, review papers, case management covers a couple of these. Patient education covers a couple of these. Coming up with a care plan that involves narcotics, PMP enrollment, that's a couple of those also. So uh, they kind of sort of fit uh, with things that we know that, uh, that currently work. And uh, so, again, what that required was legislation and multiple organizations to buy in. Uh, not just Washington ASAP, which was a big part of it, but uh, the Washington State Hospital Association, uh, the State Medical Association, and the State Healthcare Authority all had to collaborate to try to get this sort of thing moving. And uh, they had big successes with that. And uh, they had 23% uh, decrease in ED visits in the super utilizers. And that causes, costs a savings uh, to Medicaid of over uh, $31 million, right? So uh, this data, the last report was 2013, if I uh, remember correctly. So um, I'm sure they're going to come up with another one in, in a few years. But uh, if you look at it, that's, that's a fair number. That's a, that's a reasonable amount of money to try to get a program moving. Uh, the next uh, experience I wanted to share with you was this uh, Maryland experience. This was probably uh, more akin to what we can go home and think about uh, doing, but it's a uh, uh, Healthcare Access Maryland, which is a, uh, a private nonprofit, and they, most, they worked with uh, one hospital, Sinai Hospital in, Boston, in Baltimore. And uh, they got a small grant. Well, I mean, any grant greater than a grant that I have, which is zero is big, but uh, they were grant funded about $800,000. Uh, and uh, the key components of their uh, uh, program, they extended hours of case management access. So uh, if, you, uh, if, if you watch the news now, occasionally they talk about how the healthcare system is a function of the convenience of the providers, like bankers hours. Uh, but patients need this case management uh, on weekends, after hours. So they extended the access. They, uh, in this situation, also got very creative with the case management uh, in determining, like, how to get patients from point A to point B uh, and things of that nature. They also had a lot of stakeholder collaboration with local organizations to try to collate resources. Uh, and uh, they improved documentation uh, within the hospital. Now, uh, they probably got involved, with their, they got involved with their prescription monitoring program. The health information exchange wasn't necessarily a part of this experience because it was just one hospital. Uh, however, uh, these sorts of things, the uh, case management, increased access, uh, and uh, thinking outside of the box with what you do for case management are probably things that are much easier to replicate. Uh, 
So, uh, so to kind of sum up these uh, things that happen in these case stories with, uh, with Camden or with uh, Washington uh, and with Baltimore, uh, great programs usually are local and community-based. And I, uh, I think it might be uh, a little bit unfair to say what will happen if we do whatever happened in Camden everywhere. I don't think what happened in one place uh, is going to be something that happens, something that's able to work everywhere. Uh, Camden has resources. It's, very, it's geographically small, uh, and uh, that's very different than Atlanta, very different than Washington, uh, very different than uh, even Las Vegas and Nevada. Uh, however, the, uh, the ones that are successful are usually based uh, on a smaller scale. Uh, all these, uh, case, all these uh, great programs use case managers. And uh, those are the type of persons, they have multiple kinds of names. Uh, at Grady, we have case managers that are in the ER, uh, and we call them patient navigators. That could be, uh, sometimes they're called that. But uh, those types of persons are the ones who uh, kind of help guide patients on an individual level, not necessarily from the uh, strictly social work standpoint, but in the transportation and barriers to social determinants of health. Uh, also, uh, great programs usually leverage existing resources. So uh, if you can partner with other nonprofits that provide things, the case manager can put them in touch with someone who might have uh, uh, diabetes management supplies and things like that. Uh, and this leveraging existing resources, again, oftentimes are community-based. Uh, you'll probably need uh, some level of support. The, uh, the homegrown uh, or the grassroots, the ER doctor, medical director says, I want to I decrease the number of visits to the ER. That's, uh, that's kind of an uphill battle. Uh, now, there's ways to discuss this with your C-suite partners uh, that I think is going to be very important uh, or would be very important. However, the big successes a lot of times come with money and come with uh, buy-in from the community and buy-in from uh, hospital administration prior to uh, the ER uh, medical director saying this is a great idea. Also, uh, case managers, not just case managers that are UR people that hang out uh, in the ivory tower and come down and say, this patient shouldn't be admitted. Uh, the, those case managers uh, probably are better served if they operate in the, uh, in the physical space of the ER. And also, uh, health technology is going to be part of it. Now, how many of you guys have a place where you have a compre comprehensive statewide health information exchange? Now there's one in Washington. All right, so yeah, so uh, this right here, this piece is kind of lagging. Now, ASEP uh, has uh, big plans, particularly in the state level, in pushing this sort of technology across uh, platforms. Uh, you know, the closest we get in Atlanta, uh, we have, um, you guys probably all use that. Well, some of you guys use Epic, right? Uh, Epic has the Care Everywhere tab. Uh, that's close. Uh, some places have like a third party or a third party site where you go and get the uh, health information. Uh, probably kind of wonky, but uh, that said, this right here probably is going to be part of making this work to avoid uh, duplication of efforts. Now, the prescription drug monitoring program, most, most of you guys work in a place that has that, right? Yeah, so that's much easier to do. Uh, and uh, by using this, you know, obviously you can decrease the amount of narcotic abuse uh, in, your, uh, in your area. So uh, care plans. So 
Uh, one of the biggest things about the uh, care plan uh, uh, that's going to be necessary if you're going to try to implement that, even if it is just for one person, is uh, it's going to have to be easy to access, right? Uh, now, one of the pitfalls we had when I uh, was a uh, assistant medical director at uh, one of our Emory hospitals is that the care plan had uh, needed, you needed to have special access in order to see it. And uh, we had to get over that barrier. There were some, I guess, HIPAA, the uh, administrators were initially concerned about uh, biasing providers in the care of this patient. However, these things need to be easy to access, just like any other piece of the medical record. Uh, and that could be a barrier if that's not communicated properly. Also, this uh, uh, care plan needs to be useful. Uh, it's very easy to make a care plan that says, oh, you know, this patient was here a bunch. Good luck. Uh, it needs to have information that ties the patient to, like, a phone number for either their community case manager or maybe an action team, uh, a, uh, a loved one that uh, frequently picks them up from the ER. So uh, it needs to be something that you can use. Uh, also, these care plans need to be reviewed periodically. Uh, these patients who were frequent utilizers, again, uh, may or may not fall out of this uh, of the definition, and those things need to be reviewed in order to stay current. Okay, so uh, so again, I work at Grady, and uh, in the uh, late 2000s, uh, late 2010s, uh, we had a, a, a big issue with um, the, the bottom line in the hospital. Today, uh, Grady Grady is thriving. Uh, this, uh, we have a lot of money from the Marcus Foundation, so we had a new trauma center and a, and a new ER and a new stroke center. All, we, have plenty, we have plenty of things for treating the other underserved now. However, <clears throat> before we restructured a lot of the board and a lot of the ways to donate money, uh, we had an issue with our dialysis clinic. And uh, we had a partner, which was uh, Fresenius, which is, I guess, the world's largest dialysis provider. And uh, they uh, would not, it was harder and harder to partner with them to uh, treat the patients in the outpatient dialysis clinic that had no funding. Uh, and so we started, started that situation with uh, 580 people that were coming to the outpatient dialysis center at Grady uh, that accounted for $20 million in losses, right? Uh, a lot of these people were undocumented uh, a handful of them just hadn't gotten it together to get, get insurance by way of address and things like that. Uh, once we figured out uh, how to uh, care for a lot of these people, it still left us with about 70 patients uh, who were undocumented citizens uh, that came from a variety of, of countries, many of which were uh, uh, Latin American countries like uh, uh, Mexico, Puerto Rico, uh, and uh, so we we worked with actually uh, the local consulate. Uh, we worked with uh, some other local uh, dialysis clinics to try to place them. Uh, because what happened was is that because of these losses here, we weren't able to update the equipment. And uh, it was to the point where starting to dialyze patients here was going to be unsafe. Uh, so ultimately, uh, through a, a ton of legislation, the, the, uh, the outpatient piece of our dialysis clinic had to close. Uh, and at the end of it, uh, we had 15 patients uh, who would routinely come to Grady, and they would fit this uh, super utilizer uh, designation. And uh, 
what happened was, so, so there's really two, two pieces of this case management uh, and care coordination that took place here. The, the first one was working on this, uh, was the initial working with the case managers on finding a place for this 580 people to go. Uh, that required a lot of community resources uh, in working with uh, uh, local consulates and authorities. Uh, but then, once we got down to the 15 patients, we had to work on what are the ways we could treat these patients uh, most efficiently if they have nowhere else to go. Uh, and there's, uh, there's actually not a whole lot on dialysis patients that use the ER as their outpatient clinic uh, in the literature. Uh, because there's multiple ways to do it. Because uh, you, you can tell me there's probably some of you guys who uh, bring the dialysis patients into the ER, give them a virtual bed, see if they need to get uh, urgently dialyzed, and then they go to dialysis and they come back and they get discharged. Right? That's a lot of people. Uh, and there's uh, some places who uh, just admit all of the people that need to be urgently dialyzed, and uh, they take up a hospital bed and they get discharged the next day. Uh, some people probably put these patients in their uh, CDU or EDOBS unit, right? They physically move them there uh, for discharge in uh, maybe the same day if they need to be urgently dialyzed. So there's a lot of options. At Grady, we uh, opted for the uh, virtual bed. So uh, what we had to uh, petition for was to get a nurse practitioner to be stationed in the ER that was uh, working with the nephrology service. So this nurse practitioner would start their dialysis orders uh, in the ER. They wouldn't physically go to a hospital bed. Uh, they wouldn't go to an inpatient bed in the hospital. Uh, however, they uh, would technically be admitted on, on paper. And the patient would go get dialysis, uh, keep a virtual bed for them, and then they would return. Uh, so that turns out to be uh, a, a reasonable plan. However, uh, word got out that we're doing this efficiently. And so this 15 here is now ballooned to like 54 patients again. So uh, we're going to have to figure out uh, uh, kind of a victim. We're kind of a victim of our own success here in um, the fact that we were treating these patients so efficiently. Uh, so uh, that said, uh, these are the references here I use. Uh, I you know, there's, there's a lot that you can read on this sort of thing. I wanted to get some of the high points, uh, and I think these are a few more of the more interesting ones. Uh, we do have some time for questions, I believe. Yes, sir. Uh, you mean that some of these utilize, like, like a dialysis patient, for instance? Well, um, so what, what, uh, what we ended up having to do was, again, we worked with GSEP or the Georgia ASEP and kind of tried to get, those, get everybody at the table. At, at the end of the day, uh, the underfunded hospital like, ends up taking the brunt of that. Uh, but uh, a lot of times like, the, uh, the discussion can happen through like, a larger body. Uh, to kind of work work on that, and um, 
We also had uh, some, some local leaders, uh, state senators and whatnot help, help uh, navigate those discussions. So. But again, that takes like the buy-in from CEO to get those talks going. Uh, you know, it's state dependent. So uh, the, uh, in, in Georgia, we didn't expand uh, Medicaid. And uh, so basically the, uh, the governor is looking, looks for like a workaround to kind of expand Medicaid without calling it that. Uh, does that mean that these uh, patients are going to the ER more? Uh, probably. Now, what, uh, what happens to uh, a lot of the patients who weren't on Medicaid and get it, they don't necessarily have a higher profile of the uh, frequent utilizers, right? Uh, now, it does help that they come to the ER, whereas if before they have not, had nothing, now they have something. Uh, so that helps with, with the funds, but uh, really you're only gonna realize those gains in a patient that comes occasionally to the ER. So if someone's a frequent utilizer and they keep coming five or six times a year, they can have the best insurance. At some point, uh, the cost of taking care of them is gonna outweigh uh, the fact that they have any coverage of, at all. So, uh, you know, in the, in the different studies that we talked about, the, the ones that happen after ACA and expansion of Medicaid, it's, kind of, it's not always the same answer whether or not that increased the number of uh, frequent utilizers. Does that sort of answer your question? Anybody else? Anybody else want to share a uh, experience of uh, their successful care coordination from Washington? And like, that's exactly right. So I think uh, in my mind, like a lot, uh, a lot of what, uh, a lot of the uh, care coordination and health information exchange happens on a pull when it really should be on a push. So, uh, and that's what they did in, in Washington. I think that's why we wanted, why it's very successful. They don't understand the government's already spying on them. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, again, um, uh, like we kind of mentioned, there's like some common themes in how to make these things work. Uh, one, again, is, is the push, but is making that technology work, like you say, is uh, uh, making sure that patients uh, buy in and use it. And it's not always easy.
Right, right, right. So it went through his legislation. I looked um, for other places that tried to replicate the Washington thing. I didn't see Alaska on there, so I need to look. It's pretty recent. Oh, it's pretty recent. Okay, all right. All right, guys. Well, you guys uh, travel safely going back home, and thanks for coming and staying.